Welcome to Paytech Talk, the podcast about payments. Enjoy the show. Tiamo, welcome to like another edition of Paytech Talk, and especially following up since we had uh, Joachim on, I think over a year ago or something, and he talked all about the subscription economy. So it's good to have someone from Mina Technologies back on the podcast. So if you would just tell us who you are and what you do at Mina. Sure. Well, it's it's good to be back. It's good to see you again. Uh, it was lovely to meet last year at Money 2020 in Amsterdam. Um, so I run our product uh, teams as well as our engineering teams, our marketing teams, our onboarding teams. My official title is Chief Product Officer. I joined Mina two years ago, coming from a large multinational and came into Mina as a earlier stage uh, startup moving into the scale up journey. It's been really exciting to come in and work with our customers on both sides of our business model. As you know, uh, we work both with uh, retail banks and fintechs, but we also work with subscription businesses. And what a time to be joining this business. It's been a time where subscriptions have become increasingly larger percentages of a consumer's wallet and their spend each month. But it's also been a time where there's been increased visibility put on bottom line for financial institutions and fintechs. Uh, we all know the the last year and alone, the market has become really dicey for startups where they really have to have laser focus on profitability. Um, and our product touches all those spaces. So it's been a really exciting time to be part of the company and to be part of this, this space. Yeah, exciting indeed. So we're going to touch on those issues right now. So obviously we're in like, this sort of high interest time right now. And that's kind of like, of course, squeezing everyone, as you mentioned, startups, but also, of course, us as consumers. So despite the, I guess, sort of like pretty wild uptake in subscriptions across the board, how is the current economic environment affecting them? And how can, I guess, subscription-based companies use subscriptions to create that like stickiness, despite, you know, everything else that is going on in people's lives? Okay, well, let's talk about it. I'll usually answer across our stakeholders, right? So there's the banks, uh, fintechs, there's the subscription businesses, and there's the consumer. I'm going to start actually with the banks, because I think that's been one of the more interesting things that we've seen. So we went live with a large UK bank right after I came on. And the number of subscriptions that we've helped them manage now is over 4 million. Um, so in a little under two years, right, we were at about 4 million. Now, intuitively, when you think about that, right, that's you going in and you saying, I'm going to pause this subscription or I'm going to cancel this subscription. And so the theory there would be, okay, well, that means lower payment volume rails and less activity related to subscriptions. But it's actually the inverse is what we've seen. We've seen that when you give access to that control of your subscription, we're seeing an increase in activity on those payment rails, which tells us that actually, maybe not as intuitively, when a consumer has the ability to manage the subscription, it's not an on-off forever thing. It's a pause, resume, let's dance a little bit, right? Um, which has impact for the banks big time and the fintechs as well, because it means that, that each one of those on-off pause is a touch point for them to add value to the consumer. And in a time of you know cost of living crisis, that is priceless, right? For a bank to be a place where they can work with a consumer and they can give them control and they can give them peace of mind about making sure that their paycheck stretches further, that's a real value add for them. But it also, during this time, helps the bank because the bank is able to see not only that their, to my point on payment volumes, that their credit card or that their debit card or that their account is being chosen as the account of record, so top of wallet, right. it also helps them with operational costs 
and reducing those operational costs. It also, of course, it helps with stickiness with that consumer because, you know, if they're choosing that as their credit card of preference or their debit card of preference, the likelihood that they get, you know, attracted away by some new fun fintech um, is lower. So that's the first audience, I would say, is what we see on this. I think the second one is consumer. And the consumer is absolutely needing this right? They need to take control of their spend. They need to make choices. You know, what the data shows us is not necessarily that that means, well, we turn it off. And I think like a great example would be my partner. My partner loves to read. I think we would have more books in this house than we would have furniture if I let him run his life as he would like. (laughs) I am here to stop that. You know, if, if I came in with the kibosh and said, look, babe, you're getting 15 bucks a month. That's it. That's all you can spend on books. What would he do? I can guarantee you he would not just cut down to buying two books, you know, a month. He would go to a subscription model, right? Because that way that he could actually still get a high volume of this in a recurring basis and yet meet his budgetary needs. And I think that's where the subscription model really shines actually during times of of stress, because it allows consumers to make adjustments to their spending patterns, both recurring, as I just mentioned, but even transactional, right? I mean, you think about the average consumer in America, for example, my homeland, where we only travel, if we're lucky, one or two vacations a year, right? And even in that transactional nature, a subscription offer probably makes a lot of sense, right? So maybe it's not that they are cutting back on travel entirely, But they do need to make sure that their spend in that transactional way is going to be really good. So maybe they sign up for Scott's cheap flights where they get access to, you know, on a subscription basis, they get access to these not widely advertised trip alerts. So, you know, I think kind of then moving into the subscription business, they're taking massive advantage of it because they know that actually this is a time where they can bring in potentially new type of customers. Maybe they're more transactional subscribers. Maybe they're capturing people who usually would have spent in a different way. But, you know, that's what we see with our clients who are in the subscription business, which is why we've added such a large suite of additional features to our solution that help subscription businesses you know, reduce churn and increase acquisition. So yeah, it's not necessarily intuitive that this would be something that would actually drive up consumer behavior with subscriptions, but that's what we see. That's really interesting. So you've hit on something that is, I guess, kind of important. It gives in the consumer side more control over how we consume financial services. So there's that side of like financial, a bit of financial well-being. Can you speak a little bit on if subscriptions give more people access to financial services or like relevant access to financial services? I think that they do. I mean, that's by nature, you know, if you want to take a more altruistic view of subscriptions, that's one of the best parts about them. They allow ownership for people who couldn't afford it, right? Um, And they allow people to participate in a segment of the economy that they wouldn't be able to. Now, whether you apply that to financial services, right? um, And I don't know if that's what you meant by this, or if you're just saying like, in grouping my Volvo subscription in there with it as well. But say I wanted to get access to, you know, Elevest. So then absolutely, it's a great way to do it. Because again, then not only is your product being designed in a way that's inclusive and designed to actually meet the needs of an underserved market, i.e. women who are not investing at the same rate as men. Um, and it just gets worse as you have more intersectionality in that. But also the pricing model enables people to take part in a part of that kind of economy that they wouldn't have been able to if they had to pay an advisor you know, uh, percent, or they had to have $10,000 sitting in their checking account or savings account. 
Great. So just to circle back to what you kind of said at the beginning, there was talk about the, just the popularity of subscriptions in general and how that's you know quite popular in the consumer's wallet. But what does that mean for the future of ownership? Yeah, this is a really interesting one. Um, and it's especially when you start to look at specific segments, right, mm-hmm. of consumers. So we know that behaviorally, most consumers, like more than 50%, believe that to own something they don't need is a waste of time, right? So that's like this first kind of consumer attitude. And we know also from the data that that only increases the younger the segment, right? So when we think about both millennials and Gen Zs, that's increasing, increasing. And that is the future projection of a lot of these consumers. So most brands are sitting here thinking, what's my game plan for Gen Z? I've already mapped out my game plan for millennials, um, hopefully at this point, uh, but, uh, but they are definitely thinking about Gen Z. And we know that that, that kind of basic behavior increases there. And we see that not only in terms of consumer research, right, uh, but we see it in the data that links kind of this wide scale behavioral change from ownership to renting accelerated by the current economic climate, right, Uh, where people just don't have as much money to put down. Interest rates are suddenly rising, so they're renting more than paying, right? So we see that there. I also think that we also see some other data around the consumer is not wanting to commit to long term purchases, right? They are much more, I think it's like over 60%. uh, We could source the data over 60% of consumers, though, they would much rather sign up for subscription through a higher recurring monthly fee than a lower annual fee. And again, that's to their control. So what does the future of ownership look like? I think it looks fractional, right? Mm -hmm. I think that there is an absolute mass market opportunity to look at how pricing and go-to-market strategy, which subscriptions are big parts of, is used to tap into that need. Um, and I, you know, I'm certainly no expert on it, but I hope that we're looking at that related to sustainability as well. And what that means for less waste ending up in landfills and more maybe reuse. So that, I mean, that's my my thought on it. I'm happy to go deeper on that. <laughs> so that's really interesting, especially this sustainability angle is something I hadn't really, but I guess the younger generations are more conscious about how they use their money and what they use to, you know, spend that money on. That's and why conscious we're... about what that product will do right. to the, the future, the impact in general as well. Yeah. I mean, think about like subscription services for things like, you know, razors, coffee pods, mm-hmm. et cetera, like that, right? It reduces the single use packaging like dilemma there, right? Think about Rent the Runway, one of my favorites. Please, if you're listening, come to the <laughs> But, you know, rent the runway where I'm not, you know, buying that Giovanni dress, I'm renting it, you know, like, I mean, there's huge ways that the subscription model can have an impact on sustainability. Mostly, I mean, I would say by encouraging the sustainable behaviors at the highest level, it's about providing consumers these kind of more sustainable, educated approach to renting or fractional ownership as opposed to everybody has to have one thing right a car especially in the u.s where we're all from (laughs) yes everyone has to have a car you have to have a car yeah i mean and you hit on cars and like that is in terms of i guess the future also like one of the areas that i've always thought has subscription or not but the funny thing is it is subscription is like the most innovation and pricing is done in cars 
Now, that may not sound obvious to you, right? But actually think about it. They are often some of the first ones to deploy things like subscription pricing, right? And it's gone beyond in the last few years renting my Volvo, which is one of the first things that, you know, when Nina was first founded and Joachim, who you mentioned, came on last time, he he always talked about like, you can even rent your car now. But now it's not even that. It's like, hey, I can rent my performance from Tesla. I can pay extra to Mercedes to have the boost in terms of performance on my car. So yeah, I think innovation and subscriptions go hand in hand with cars. And I suspect, you know, that we will see that impact over time. Well, I never thought, yeah, he didn't mention that in the first, the podcast. And also Mercedes speaking of that, they have the in-car payments now as well. So it's like everything's getting connected very nice. And of course, you can't have anything without payments. That's right. It all comes together, which is, you know, well, that's where Mina sits, right? That's our one API. We try to bring it all together for all three parties and um, really try to remove that friction from subscriptions in any way that friction exists. You're out there. We're trying to fight you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. So following up on that, since you are the chief product officer, what makes a good product in the first place, would you say? Oh, um, well, value creation in a repeatable, scalable way. And what I mean by repeatable, scalable, my poor teams, current and past know this, um, but repeatable means that this is something that is needed by many, not just one or two. It's something that you as a business can produce repeatably and scalably. So every time, you know, the hallmarks of a good product is you get operational leverage, right? As it is built and sold and resold and reused, ideally, otherwise you're just building and selling services that are one off. Um, But really at the heart of it, what makes for a great product is it delivers value in a way that customers are willing to pay for and they want to use and it works for your business. Pretty simple. Cool. Following up on that question, we talk about sort of like products, you know, they're basically have relevance to the audience and they can be built in a scalable way, obviously, because you're still in the business. So that needs to make some money over there. But in order to do that, it's not really like this sort of neutral thing, right? Cause like people make products. And so like, what does that mean for like a product team's composition and making these sort of relevant things? Because, you know, there's like all this stuff written. I mean, I'd hear about like these white dudes who like don't live in a, live in a box somewhere. And they're like, oh, this is the greatest algorithm ever. But there's obviously problems with all these things because they're heavily biased, according to the creator. Uh, but anyway, in terms of products, I would imagine having a sort of product team that has different individuals and different sort of backgrounds would go into making these sustainable products for actual people. Yes. So I think the topic you're getting to is like inclusive product. Anytime I talk about this, I like to give reference to a woman who's done a phenomenal job building the concept of product inclusion. Her name is Annie, um, Annie Jean Baptiste. She is the head of product inclusion at Google. Um, I'm lucky enough to be part of uh, Equity Army, which is a great community of volunteers who come together and think about how to give frameworks to businesses who are trying to build inclusive products and create inclusive product uh, cultures. Her book, Building for Everyone, is fantastic. So I highly recommend it. Now, Mike part over. Um, how do you do that? I mean, it's really, a, to me, I think about it as a full ecosystem uh, audit on, you know, everything from product starts with ideation, and it goes into discovery, and then it goes into delivery, and then it goes into optimization. And at the end of its life, it goes into sunsetting. Each one of those have multiple layers to how it's created. There's the people, 
that are involved. There's the data that's involved. There's the tools that are involved. There's the vendors, the partners that are involved. How equitable and how representative or inclusive are each of those? It's a really simple way to kind of look and do an audit of your of your teams. But it's not just your teams, right? Because it's who is in positions of power. Who says what is the problem that we're going to be focusing on? Is that the exec team or is that the product team, right? And any company I'm at, that's the product team, right? The exec team is going to say, hey, this is our strategy. This is our vision. This is our business goals. But the product team is responsible for saying, cool, so let's take a look at that. Let's look at our customer set. Let's look at the market. Let's look at the regulatory trends. Let's look at our feasibility from a technology perspective. Which problems make most sense for us to work on, e.g., which delivers a product that works, which is something that consumers are willing or customers are willing to pay for that is able to be built in a repeatable, scalable way. So, you know, making sure, and this, this is more of a, like, is it a product-led company or is it more of a, you know, sales-led or exec-led company? But I think if you have the ability to kind of look at the life stages of your product life cycle and then do that audit about what is the inclusion and the representativity across each of those bands of the people, the processes, the tools, the vendors, that'll give you a pretty clear understanding of do you have diversity baked in each step? Because if you don't start with that, you don't really know where you're lagging. Um, and it can be really easy for people to say, let's do inclusive product. Okay, let's hire people of color. They're going to do that. But who cares if those people of color, one, all come from the same Ivy League school, or two, don't have the ability to say, look, I know, Mrs. CEO, you think that this is the hottest problem to solve right now, but the data tells us something really different. Can we have a conversation about that? So we make sure that we're working on the right things. You know, as we understand your strategy and your vision, it seems like we'd really want to focus on this and here's why, you know, if that culture of psychological safety and the ability to talk strategically versus a, you know, just to ship it and get it done level, who cares if you brought in some great underrepresented from a, a race perspective into your team. That doesn't make for an inclusive product culture, right? So I think it's it's kind of, sorry, it's a lengthy answer, but like anything worth doing, it takes some time to assess and understand where your deficits are and then put a strategy together on how you're going to do that. And that's what a lot of product you know leaders are responsible for, quite frankly, because um, it is not just an easy thing that you just do. You really need to have a strategy behind it. Uh, that's quite a lengthy answer, but much appreciated because we always would like to avoid any sort of tokenism because that yeah. really doesn't help anyone in the end. There's one last question because we mentioned cars and we mentioned probably some other verticals. So is there any sort of product category or vertical that subscriptions have not yet conquered? This was a, a random one, I just thought, because there's like dog food, obviously, diapers, everything uh, flowers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, it's so interesting. But I mean, I guess, you know, anything, I mean, anything is a service model that doesn't exist. So if you were to take a look at, I mean, this isn't like a specific answer, but if you were, again, to do an audit of the industry and say, who has SaaS, who doesn't have SaaS, right? right. That's going to be one really good indication of how they started to break this down and think about this in terms of, giving access to not just a one-time sale, right? But building a product that's been built for an ongoing long-term relationship, right? I think to give more of a fun one, um, or one that I 
I interact with pretty regularly because I am an American living in the UK. So I'm having to make sure I learn the government ways of working, et cetera. And things that I would certainly be willing to pay a subscription for is access to more reliable government services um, rather than, I mean, I'll give you an idea. This is kind of combines healthcare and government, but I was talking with some friends this weekend about how they just can't get into their local GP. They cannot get on the phone with them anymore. It's it's so difficult. Like one of them said she was waiting around trying to find out if there was like a kidney problem. She's like, if there had been a kidney problem, I might have been dead by now. You know, like the time that she got the response on there was so flow. And we know that there's a lot of budget issues that are taking place there. So would I pay access for a subscription to, to government? I mean, I think that's how taxes are supposed to work, but I don't know that they've actually figured out the experience to be great. You know, another one is brick and mortar. Uh, I remember there was a awesome concept, sadly did not execute well during the pandemic. Someone opened in my neighborhood a dog cafe and she had loyal customers, right, coming in. Me being one of them, we loved it. It was a place just for dogs and dog owners, but She didn't manage recurring revenue coming in well enough to actually be able to predict and lock in, you know, enough costs to manage her operating costs. And so it closed. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, every time I went in there, there was probably 30 people, right? If you got every one of those 30 people to say, hey, look, I guarantee I'll spend a hundred bucks a month here. I'll have lunch one day. I'll have some coffee, right? That might have been a way that they could have locked in that revenue. So maybe it's something around more of these traditional services, brick and mortar, that need to look at how can they make subscriptions work for them. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's that's off the cuff. No, no, that's that's great because it does. I mean, that's also one of the effects of the pandemic is more sort of brick and mortar or like traditional businesses. They were forced to go online. But like, I guess now it's like, how do you actually like capture the sort of growth that you had? that you gained in during the pandemic with omni-channel offering. One of those touch points could and probably, I guess, should be subscriptions. Absolutely. And then you think about our our customers and what they see. And, you know, we know that the majority of people would rather pause a subscription than cancel it. So say they did adopt that subscription model and Daisy's Dog Cafe was suddenly able to be managed, you know, in my Lloyd's app or in my you know, um, Starling app as a subscription. Instead of me, when I go, you know, away, I'm saying I'm going to cancel this. They're going to get nothing from me. Maybe I pause it. Maybe I downgrade it to a different plan for a while. But it keeps that churn behavior from happening. Mm -hmm. And it allows them to maintain that connection with the consumer, which at the end of the day, uh, or the customer, which at the end of the day is what subscription models are all about. So I I think you're right on on hitting on that kind of omni-channel and recurring ongoing relationship with subscribers is possible when we move to that ongoing subscription model. Great answer. Loved it. So thank you for me and uh, Emily. Yes, thank you for coming on. Very fun episode. (laughs) Yeah, I think so too. (laughs) Thanks for having me. You've just been listening to Pay Tech Talk, the podcast about payments. Pay Tech Talk is brought to you by Cognito Amsterdam. Thanks for listening.